Investing in your business can be a wonderful way to grow wealth and live the life you want. That's what I'm doing. But investing in someone else's business can be even better. In my opinion, this is the best way to generate true passive income streams. Through ETFs or exchange-traded funds, you can buy a basket of shares in different companies in one trade. BetaShares offers Australia's broadest range of ETFs, including the Global Cashflow Kings ETF, ticker symbol CFLO, which lets you invest in 200 companies with high levels of free cash flow, such as Visa and Costco, in one ETF. You can learn more about CFLO and the BetaShares fund range by visiting betashares.com.au. Read the PDS and TMD on the website and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. Welcome to RASC's Australian Business Podcast, a series for entrepreneurs who dare to leave the world in a better place and get paid while we do it. This podcast will make you a better business owner, investor, founder, or entrepreneur. If you want to start a business or already have one, please subscribe to the series or share it with your friends, business partner, or colleagues. And don't forget to consider taking our free business course, which includes heaps of templates for creating business plans, HR documents, employee files, all of my software recommendations, and more. The course is completely free and available via the link in your podcast player. Okay, let's get into the episode. Joseph, thank you for taking some time to join me on the show. Oh, it's a great pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, I know you're on holiday and you've been so kind to show us the backdrop for those of us that are watching. Show us the backdrop of Queenstown behind you, which is wonderful. But I know you are hailing from Melbourne normally. Perhaps in the future, we'll be able to grab a coffee. But uh, we've spoken to David about the book, Black Belt, about judo, about the two of you and the founding team kind of building the business together and everything that went into that. So I would highly encourage anyone who hasn't watched that or listened to that to go back and have a listen or watch of that. But we're going to cover some similar but different ground today. And in particular, given your role at judo now, but also previous roles that you had, I figured a good place to start this would be with something that is mentioned in the book, which is just the principles of leadership and how you think about leadership personally, but also what you try and foster internally within the business. And I guess maybe we can just go from there because I'm sure I'll have some follow-ups. It's an important topic, actually. And it's something I think your leadership brand, if I can use that term, evolves over time. You learn a lot through good leaders that you have had the pleasure of working with and also some bad leaders. Actually, I've learned a lot. I can think of two leaders that I had experienced in my career that shaped my way of thinking about leadership quite significantly. So I think for me, being a leader in any walk of life, not just in business, is a responsibility that you have to other other people. And it's a responsibility that you should think carefully about taking on before you do so. I think about leadership, you know, particularly in a, in a young growing company that needs leaders that have a very strong sense of purpose about what it is we're trying to achieve in the business, that are consistent in the way that they talk and lead, and show demonstrate strong empathy for the views of other people. Leadership for me also is being really comfortable in your own skin, knowing that you're not going to have the answers to all questions and there will be smarter people in the room, but actually engaging with smarter people and bringing their strengths into the discussion 
in giving people a safe environment in which to conduct themselves. And I, when I'm speaking to graduates or new entrants into, into the company, I always say that one of the key principles of leadership is that leaders should always eat last. In other words, look after the needs of your team first before you start looking after your own needs. That's not necessarily a view that, or a philosophy that you see in a lot of leaders, but I've come to realize that great leadership is really about bringing the best out of other people. And could the flip side of leadership was followership, right? People are going to want to be led by you and bring the best of themselves to whatever situation that you're in. So I think demonstrating care for people, demonstrating always being authentic, because people can see through a fake very, very quickly. And I also think that people want to be dealing with the person, not the job title. They want to see you as an individual, that there's no difference between you as the CEO of a company at nine to five and the person they might bump into in the shopping center at the weekend. They want to say, this is how this person always talks, how he thinks, what he believes in. So that consistency is very important to me. The authenticity, as I mentioned, but but demonstrating great care for people, making tough calls, because the other thing that when I look back on my career with some of the leaders I've worked with, there is nothing more frustrating than indecisive people. So being clear on what it is the company is seeking to do, getting the input of other people, being clear that we need to make a decision and we need to move on. And that we don't have any appetite for relitigating things that we've agreed to do. So I think that strength of character about I've heard the views, we've socialized issues, we now want to make a decision and get moving on it. That for me is very important. Strong decisiveness is, is critical. I think there's also an element of bravery in leadership. I remember as a younger executive listening to a leader that I had a huge amount of time for and still do. And he said, look, you know, there's a big difference between leadership and management. And you know when you're leading, when you're feeling a little bit uncomfortable, you're kind of out there, you've stepped in front of a situation and you're trying to convince people to follow you. So I think that I think a lot about that when there are times when I'm feeling a little bit uncomfortable about something, I feel I may be out there on my own. I keep on saying to myself, actually, this is what real leadership feels like, that you've made a call. You're going to persuade others and influence others to join you. But for a little period of time, you're going to be on your own. And so, I mean, that's a long-winded answer. But all of those points, for me, make define leadership. That, And I keep on saying, going back to my comment earlier, that leaders should eat last. They should look after the team, look after the people that they are leading. And that way, they build a huge amount of loyalty, trust and strong followership. I like that idea. One of the things that happens, Joseph, is particularly in a larger business, like your business obviously is growing larger now, judo, I often find that sometimes people can seep into an organization that maybe don't eat last, right? Maybe they have very strong internal ambition for whatever may be the case. And there's a line in the book, and I can't remember who you referenced, but it was what you permit, you promote. And I often find that the people that have very strong internal drives for their own reasons, which is oftentimes it's fair enough, that's human nature, 
they can often have an asymmetrically negative impact on an organization and the culture and the ethos. So I'm curious how you kind of identify those people and how you act bravely in that situation. Yeah, well, look, that's a great point because I can think of numerous examples of people who find themselves in leadership positions and particularly at times of stress, they default to behaviors that are inconsistent with the sort of behaviors that you feel are important in the company. And so, for example, they may lead, in inverted commas, with a, a bullying style that people feel intimidated, people feel threatened by them, that their language and their body language can be quite dismissive of other people's perspectives and kind of demonstrate a we're going to get this done at all costs approach. And we can all think of examples of people like that. I can think of about hundreds. I personally don't like those sort of behaviors. It does stagger me sometimes when I read or hear about a CEO in a company who has a terrible reputation for treating people badly, for cutting corners, for being anything other than sincere. And basically saying, we'll get this done at all costs sort of approach. And those kind of narcissistic behaviors are not uncommon, actually, in leadership, in CEOs. I can Again, I can think of several. But I don't think they're ever sustainable. And I don't think you ever get the best out of the organization. And you never get the best out of good people. Because good people don't want to be involved in situations where behaviors are, they're not values-based. They're all about getting things done at all costs. And there's a lack of sincerity or authenticity. If I find those behaviors inside judo, I would look to move that person on. And I've done it, actually. Obviously, I'm not going to mention names, but I've done it. I can think of three cases where I just felt that they, particularly in situations of stress where people derail, they go back to the kind of behaviors that are really kind of productive. And bullying is a common characteristic of people. Also, people who politicize situations. I mean, I know that inside large organizations in particular, but not just large organizations, you can get some individuals who are very political in the way that they behave. They they hold on to information that they should be sharing. They weaponize information against somebody. They're scheming and trying to succeed at the expense of someone else. I have absolutely no tolerance for that. I saw it so much in my career. And if you see an individual like that, you you withdraw that discretionary effort that you otherwise would bring. And trust starts to be weakened. And to your earlier comment, that if others see you condoning that sort of behavior, then you're making a statement that essentially endorses that behavior and to the detriment of the organization. I have no time for that. Again, because I've seen it so often in, in my career, I would speak to the individual and I'd give them a, a candid assessment of what I'm seeing. And I'd say, look, let's work on you, your behavior. But if there's no improvement, it's time for them to move on. It's like a cancer. Bad leadership's like a cancer inside an organization. It really impacts the way the company is run, the way people feel about things, the way the effort that people put in the trust that they have in each other. And again, this is the shadow side of high performers or high achievers. This attitude that we're going to get this done. If you're not with us, you're against us. 
and they kind of push things through and people become quite disillusioned by that style of leadership. It's never sustainable. It's never, ever sustainable. So a big part of my job as the CEO of the the bank is to have a finger on the pulse when it comes to the tone and language and style of leadership across the company. It can be very detrimental. And to your comment, it's one thing talking about the culture and about values, but if people see you condoning or endorsing a behavior that's totally inconsistent with what you've said, then it really does weaken your leadership authority. Obviously, I've got this on a micro scale compared to you, Joseph, but I have had instances of this happening. And my own experience is that uh, I left it way too long to deal with it. I think most business owners would probably have that reaction and they probably experienced it before because of the secondary impacts and the derivatives of the first impact. It's just, it kind of sends ripple waves across uh, the business. There's one final thing I wanted to touch on with leadership before we move on. And this is actually more directly related to something that I spoke about with David, which was that when you originally started Judo Bank and the concept was Project Greengate, if I'm not mistaken, the two of you would kind of plot at the pub, hence the name Greengate, and uh, you would think about what could be. But shortly after that, a number of executives, and if I'm not mistaken, probably seven out of the eight that you asked came with you. And I've often thought that a true sign of leadership is actually who follows you without too much persuasion. I'm sure there were some. And in a startup environment, that can be very telling because you have the multiplier effect of high-performance, high-quality people. And I'm curious why you think those seven people followed you so early. Like, What was it about perhaps either David or yourself or both of you together or even just the idea? Well, it's a great question because one of the things that we did reflect on at the very beginning is, are we going to be able to attract the talent that we're going to need to make this a successful endeavor? high-caliber talent, and I go back to the one of the key measures of a good leader in my experience is that he or she can surround themselves with people that are every bit as talented and every bit as strong as leaders than they as individuals are, and they don't feel insecure. We identified the people that we thought would be able to add a lot of value to the company. I think that we had a pretty good reputation in the industry, I think that people saw us as value-driven or high integrity. I, I can't speak for myself, but I can make these comments with David. I mean, David is well-known in the banking industry, is regarded as someone of impeccable credentials when it comes to behaviors, to values, to integrity, and the kind of person that's very easy to trust, who's very easy to work with because he listens, he seeks views, and he cares about people. I would hope that he would be, and others would be able to say some of the same things about me. But I think that we, our reputations and our brand, if I can say, in terms of the standards that we set for ourselves and expect in others, was a factor that would have been attractive to the type of people that we wanted to join the company. It's a big ask when you say to somebody who's a very senior position inside other banking organizations, to leave the warm bath of the job that they have inside those big organizations and take a big risk on a startup, which was an idea. 
But I think we were able, actually, we didn't have to spend a lot of time persuading people because people that we spoke to saw it, saw the issue straight away, saw that we had thought through what this business would look like, and were quite excited about the prospect of being part of building something that is today Juro Bank. So I think the personal brand helped a lot, but also we knew what characteristics we were looking for in the people that we approached, what the values that we were looking for. We didn't want egotistical people. We wanted people who would draw, A, who knew the business inside out, the banking business, that is, who were team players. We did not want Robinson Crusoe's. We wanted people who played well inside a team, who emphasized we, not I, did this. It's one of the things that my alarm bells go off when I hear someone saying, look what I've achieved. You know, <laughs> it should be, what, look what we've achieved as a team. So really strong team values. People who had a risk appetite, because the thing at the beginning of this journey, uh, it was that we knew it was going to be a roller coaster. This was not going to be, you know, a nice gradual path to building something. There were going to be dark days and dark weeks. There were going to be times when, Failure was staring you in the face when the walls were closing in. And so we needed people who would be resilient through the roller coaster journey that is building a new company. The last thing that we wanted were people who were excited at the beginning, but as soon as things got difficult, we'd start getting wobbly and be looking back at the job they once had and trying to get back into that warm bath of working inside large organizations. I think we are really happy with the people that we attracted into the company. I mean, in the book Black Belt and in lots of the commentary around judo, a lot of emphasis is given to David and I, but judo would not be existing today if it were not for the outstanding contribution that people like Chris Bayless, Tim Alexander, Jackie Colwell, and, and others. I mean, this is not a business that you can build with one or two people, you've got to have a really strong team of co-founders. So I, I always want to emphasize that because a lot of the limelight, it shines on David and I, but th this was a business that was built by a team of seven or eight people, not by one or two people. And also because we place a lot of emphasis all the way through the journey on measure twice, cut once, be careful about who you bring into the company, not just as part of the founding team, but also as investors. Be careful about who you bring in and do your homework. So I think we did. We got that right. There are things that we didn't get right, but I thought we chose the team really well. We were always clear with people, incidentally. We said, look, the advice that we have been given is that the team that builds this company might not be the same team in five years' time because the company's needs change. And so there might come a time in this journey when we're going to sit down and talk about that your time inside the company has come to an end, your contribution has been outstanding, and you're forever a friend, but we need a different set of skills. And this kind of goes back to our earlier comment. I see my job, if I can use a, a sporting analogy, I, I'm the coach, and I've got to look at the team and say, will this team win us the premiership this year? Then I'm, I'll say to myself, but I'll, when it comes to next season, the team that won as the premiership last season might not be the right team for next season. 
And so a big part of the job that I have as a leader and CEO of the company is thinking constantly about the team and do, do we have the right people? And then having a really honest conversation with people early, not, not surprising them, but by saying, look, I'm going to start thinking about how this team needs to evolve. And it may be you no longer are going to be the right person for what we the organization needs. But I want to talk to you about that so we can plan this and do it in quite a, a respectful manner. I would say I do that all the time, actually. I mean, I'm already, barely a month goes by that I don't sit back for an hour or two and think about, I'm really happy with the team we've got today, but am I going to be, is it the right team for next season? And lots of long answer to a very good question. We spent a lot of time thinking about the people we wanted inside the company. And I would say to any business owner or any CEO of a company, you can't spend enough time on this. Because if you pick the right team, they're going to make you look so good. If you pick the wrong team, they're going to make you look so poor. And if you have one or two individuals in, in the team that operate as stars and that everything revolves around them, then that's not going to work. With David, I spoke about the idea of ageism, which is also talked about in the book. But there was a particular thing that he mentioned that I should ask you as well. So he's, he's put you in the spotlight here, Joseph. There was a, on page 34, there was a conversation that alluded to this. And uh, I'll quote the book. It says, we would often reflect on Joe Giannamori's, I think I said that correctly, cautious counsel that we were no spring chickens and that not only was this a very high risk project, but a meaningful career plan B might be harder to find not to mention our depleted finances, and you go on. David basically said to me that there was a time when you sought counsel from someone on your business idea, being Joe, and Joe basically said that this is a fantastic idea, but do you really want to do it? And I guess the question that I have for you is, what did you make of that comment then, and what do you make of it now? So in terms of the advice that you, your initial reaction and the advice that you heeded from that? Well, I mean, it was priceless. And again, this goes back to actually people caring because it's easy to say this is a great business plan, go for it. But the real friend, and I would call Joe a friend, um, says, look, are you sure you want to do this? Because you've had a career as a very senior executive inside large banks and there are other large banks you could go work for and, and earn a good salary and do that for the next 10 years or so. So think long and hard about whether this is the right thing for you to do. And uh, I always reflect on the no spring chicken because um, <laughs> when someone says to you, look, this is um, a great idea and you guys have got lots of experience and then comes the butt. <laughs> and you're like, oh gosh, here we go. But, and then of course, then it says, and please don't take this the wrong way. And then you kind of, you go back in your seat and said, oh, what's going to happen? What is he going to say next? And the no spring chicken thing was that you're a veteran. You've spent all of your career in large organizations. What you're about to embark on, you've never done anything like this before. And it's going to be a roller coaster of a journey. And are you sure you're up for it? And so, I thought that was a great question because it was a sincerely offered question, right? And it was important that we reflected on that. I consider that because the implications were that the chances of failure are high. 
he said that the chances of failure here, because there's no precedent in Australia for what we were doing, the chances of failure were 90% in his estimate. And that if you fail and you've lost all your money and you've used up time that you could otherwise have invested in another job, this could be the biggest mistake you've ever, ever made. So it did cause us, cause me to reflect long and hard to make myself absolutely satisfied that I was up for the challenge. So it was good advice because he, he could have said to me, great business plan, great idea, great experience, go for it. But I, I thought the fact that he said, but, you know, let me just ask you this, was in many ways a priceless piece of advice, stroke questioning. And I, I am forever grateful for him making us think about that. There's another page in the book where you do talk about one of the mistakes that a lot of founders make is they try to get too many opinions from too many people and they don't truly discern who are the people that give the good advice and to take it in context and to understand how those people may arrive at that information. I think that is so important, not just for founders, but for anyone making a decision with their finances, relationships, anything. The context matters. But I'd like to uh, switch gears a little bit, Joseph, and talk more about what really drives customers to judo. So there are thousands of business owners that listen to this podcast and I'm a business owner and I asked you off air how many people actually switch in to judo rather than are just new businesses starting up and looking for a bank account and et cetera, et cetera. And you said about, if I'm not mistaken, about 75% are switches from say like major banks that go and see a better proposition from judo. But I'm curious what you actually think it is Truly, like if we broke it down to the individual making the decision to switch to judo, what is it that makes them make that choice? The emotive decisions, like rather than just the features, you know, mm -hmm. what is it actually that drives them? I think it's the fact that we are a, a specialized, dedicated, small to mid-sized business bank. That's all we do. All we do. All we talk about, all we dream about, all we think about is small to mid-sized businesses. We've also hired carefully. We've hired experienced, passionate business bankers who are skilled in understanding business needs and how those business needs can be met. We are committed to giving a quick response to businesses that we don't, when a business owner is speaking to a judo banker, that banker in a lot of cases has the authority to say, yes, we can do that. And if he or she doesn't have that authority, then they'll be speaking to a colleague who sits next to them in the office and who will have that authority. So it's speed of decision-making, and it goes back to our comment right back at the beginning of this discussion about the importance of being decisive. Of the, In business, people want to know where they stand and they want decisions to be made. And so the judo proposition is that we are a specialist bank with deeply experienced people that we will make decisions quickly and will be commercial. So we're not going to say, well, policy 25 stroke two says we can't do this or have some kind of rigid approach to banking. We understand that so much in business is judgment-based. And so we exercise judgment. And, and so I think it's the ability to get a quick decision and a commercial discussion with a bank 
that only does small to mid-sized businesses. I, I think that's what makes the, the difference with judo. I mean, the number of times that I get a call from businesses, many of whom are friends of mine, that bank with a major bank, one of the major banks, and they'll say, you know, I've been with one of the major banks for 27 years, and I've never missed a heartbeat. But it's now seven weeks ago since I asked them if I could ex- increase my borrowings because I want to invest in some more plant and equipment, and I can't get a decision. And unfortunately, the way that the industry has evolved over the last decade or perhaps a bit longer is that you get caught up in this big one-size-fits-all machine that uh, quite often the bankers that you're dealing with are quite disempowered. They're not able to say, I think we can do this, whereas at judo, our bankers are heavily empowered. So speed of service and the fact we're big believers in specialization. I mean, if you think almost in all walks of life, dealing with a specialist versus a generalist means a a greater experience for you as an individual. And uh, as a specialist, small to mid-sized business bank, staffed by people who've been in the business of banking for decades, our average banker has about 17 years of experience. I think that's reflected in the quality of the service. And unashamedly, our, our core competitive advantage is our ability to generate, provide a greater service than our competition. Incidentally, one case study that I'm, I was highly motivated by, and we, we do talk about it in the book, was the creation of Enterprise Car Rental Company back in the late 50s. It was set up by a guy called Jack Taylor, who at that stage was about 48. And back in the early 50s, 48 was no spring chicken. It would be a spring chicken today, but not back then. But he um, wanted to build a car rental company that provided a great service. He was going to take on the giants. There was the Avis, the Hertz, the National Car Rentals, who dominated all of the airport space in terms of car rental space. But Enterprise Car Rental Company started off with 17 cars. All it was doing was car rentals, the same way that Judo mainly provides a loan. I mean, a, a loan from Judo, when the money hits the bank account, is no different from a loan from many of the big giants. A dollar's a dollar. But service was the key. The customer service was the key with Enterprise Car Rental. And fast forward to today, the market capitalization of Enterprise is greater that is higher rather than the aggregate of the three big giants that, that they came into the industry to compete against. So service does matter. You've got to be competitive, but service, people will pay for service because small businesses want to speak to a banker who can give them advice, tell them what's possible, and get things done. They don't want to be waiting for six weeks or eight weeks to hear back from the bank. They want to get a quick decision so they can get on with doing what they're good at doing. Mm. I actually like that because it's a behavioral thing that I see with a lot of small business and medium business owners. It's like people will explain something and you can see that their minds already jumped to the end of the sentence or the end of the paragraph to say, well, what's the answer? Kind of just give me the answer. And I think that's like a behavioral trait of many small businesses that I see. I was actually reminded of my experience Originally, I tried to go with Commonwealth Bank for, to set our business up. I just business banking and 
they didn't have anyone that knew how to deal with the trust. I mentioned this to David. We have like a family trust that owns shares in the company. They didn't have anyone. So they said, come back on a weekend, which was really hard for me to do. And then, so I ended up going across the road to NAB, who did have someone there and then ready to set me up. But it was probably two or three years later, Commonwealth Bank called me. And I still think I've only had one, maybe two calls from NAB in the years that I've been banking with them, which is probably sometimes is too much, but in terms of not enough, it's probably not enough to be honest, to, to be called a relationship. Even one experience recently, Joseph, was I was thinking about, well, maybe I can use as a personal finance thing. I'd never say this on our other channels. I loathe credit cards in every sense of the word. I do not, cannot stand them. But for our business, I, I've been talking with some accountants who are saying, well, maybe you can use it for cash flow management and help buffers and these types of things. And I thought, well, that's actually a great idea. So I went through the process to get one of these and I got denied before I even had a chance to speak with someone. And I just thought, well, this is a terrible experience. Like we've got cash in the bank. We're not really like, we're not in any financial strife, but we were just denied for whatever reason. I don't even know, to be honest. And um, that was just a terrible experience for me as a business owner. If I really want to force the issue, I have to probably go down, speak with someone. It's going to be this, that, or the other, and try and get the decision overturned. But in any case, the question that I had for you was one that I touched on with David. We didn't go to much depth, which was the idea of the four C's of assessment. So when you are assessing a business for a loan or just even assessing the business as a customer, I guess, there's obviously character, capacity, capital, and collateral. And in the book, you emphasize, and on the website, you emphasize that character is the most important, where it's typically maybe the other way around, where it's collateral. You need a house to get a loan kind of thing for your business at other banks. But I'm curious, I'm very curious to scratch the surface on character and how you think about that as a bank, in particular, how you would score some business owners or businesses based on character, whether they're qualitative, whether they're quantitative methods you use, or just how you think about constructing a view of character. I do this all the time for companies as an investor, Joseph, but as an individual or as a small business, I've never thought about this. Yeah. For me, it goes to the the heart of banking. I would always say to bankers that the end of the day, it's the character being the reputation, track record, and trustworthiness of the individual that's going to be important to the risk that we take. I wouldn't lend money to anybody, no matter how much property they might have as security, if there was a question mark in my mind over their character. Character assessment is subjective. There's no scoring framework. It's subjective assessment. And this is why experience matters. You're having experienced bankers who will be able to ask a few questions and get a sense for whether this business owner can convince you that they know what they're doing and they've thought through the opportunity and the risks and how they would manage things. How have they managed things in the past? I mean, I can remember an example for a small business that came to see me. A friend of mine asked if I would meet with them, which I agreed to do. I always remember it was in the Western Hotel in Sydney. It's now called the Fullerton. And we were in the, in the lobby bar and these two gentlemen came in with my friend. One was owner of the business and the other one was the finance financial controller. And they said, look, let, let me take you through the business plan. And I said, no, no, no. They were about to hit me with a whole lot of financial information. I said, no, 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 I'm not interested in looking at that right now. What I want you to do is just talk me through your career, the businesses that you've run, 
and what you've learned about building new businesses. And within 60 seconds, I decided that this wasn't going to work because there were alarm bells in my mind around the character assessment of the owner. So, you know, this is judgment, you know, because people can hit you with all sorts of quantitative information, putting together financial spreadsheets or business plans. But at the end of the day, I don't want to read those until I'm satisfied with the character of the individual that I'm I'm dealing with. This is experience-based. It's subjective. But you know when you're sitting across the table from someone who you're thinking, actually, my head, my heart, and my gut, all three have got to be in sync, right? And my gut saying, I'm not sure I could trust this person. Or my gut saying, actually, this person doesn't really know, hasn't thought through this business well enough. Or they have no experience in doing what they're planning on doing. Now, you've got to just ask a few questions and satisfy yourself. It's not a perfect science. But to my mind, it's at the essence of banking is you've got to be happy that you can trust the individual before you start looking at the business plan, you start looking at the cash flows and the cap, the collateral and capital that they've got. And also knowing, I mean, not every business is going to be successful. There are some businesses that are with all good intent, things go wrong and the bank might lose money. But when things go wrong, you want to be able to look the owner in the eye and say, can we work with you to fix this? I've seen examples in my past where businesses get into trouble and you you want to go and find the owner and and he's nowhere to be found. And you find out that he's been stripping assets out of the business for the last six months or that he's kind of run off with his his or her having an affair outside their marriage, spending money on Lamborghinis and boats instead of on the business. There was this element in my mind that the assessment on character uh, trust was wrong. When things go wrong, you want people to work with you to fix them. And that's why this assessment of character is so fundamental. But I do know that it is, it is subjective. You need a lot of experience to do it well. And that's one of the reasons why the banks don't do this stuff well. It's one of the reasons why the banks default to the fourth C is how much collateral have you got? Because I don't want to spend too much time trying to assess other aspects of you, your business. I want to know how much security you've got before we kind of look at the numbers. That causes a problem for a lot of small businesses because a lot of small businesses don't want to put the family home on the line. This business I've been running for 30 years or 10 years, it's successful. I'm heavily invested in the business and I have a team around me. So assess the business. Don't assess my family home. One of the reasons why judo exists is that the banks have lost the ability to do that. The banks, 90-odd percent of all SME lending in Australia is predicated on property as security. Don't tell me about your business. Tell me which property you've got. We want to go back to the fundamentals of relationship banking. Tell me about you. What it is you're trying to do? How have you thought it through? How are you going to manage risks? Then let's talk about the business plan. Then let's look at how much capital you've got in the business. Then let's look at security collateral. That's the right sequencing of the way banking should be done, in my view. And the reason it wasn't being done well is the reason why Judo exists. Mm. I like those questions that you walk through there as well. I think they're really important. 
I haven't actually been through the judo process, but I'll probably be one of those that go through it in the next few months. So I'm sure I will report back to listeners of the podcast and tell you how it went. There are a few other questions that I have, and they more relate to you personally and how you've kind of ventured through life, Joseph. And um, the first one is, and this is um, it's quite a mouthful for me because I think I've got this right, but I never know for certain. But you've written multiple books. You've led banks. You've started a bank. And this is your academic CV, a Master's of Science from London Business School, another Master's of Science in International Management from the University of London, an MBA from Bangor University in Wales, an MBA from Henley Business School, a Master's of Psychology and Neuroscience from King's College, a Master's in Contemporary Chinese Studies from the University of Nottingham in Ningbo, China. That's only the stuff I know about, right? And so my question is, is like, what sacrifices have you had to make personally or professionally to achieve what you've achieved in your career? Well, that's a big and deep question. I think that when I look at my career and when I look at the other achievements, the academic, I've got six master's degrees and written four books. And as you say, been involved in starting a bank. So you could kind of score those achievements with an A or a B plus if you were doing that. If you looked at my personal life, my family life, I think that doesn't score as high because obviously, in fact, that I would probably struggle to get a C because I, I've made sacrifices in life. I've placed more emphasis on my career and that's come at the expense of other aspects of relationships. Now, I say that candidly because I feel this is quite a common thing. I think um, I remember years ago when I was at Citibank in London, one of the divisions was the retail bank. We had an offsite and there was 10 senior executives. And my, I was there as a kind of note taker in those days. And it was 10 men and nine of them. And they were all in their, I would say, early 40s. Nine of them were divorced. And I was going, wow, that is staggering. And then when I kind of look at the success that most successful business people, not all, but most, uh, have had marriage breakdowns, they've had unhappy family lives. And it's because I think people make trade-offs. And I, and I remember reading, going back to psychology, there's a famous Scottish, British psychologist called R.D. Lang, now dead, but he was very famous in the 60s and 70s and, and still well-read today, his assessment was that successful people make trade-offs in life, sometimes unconsciously. But the idea of being very successful in the pursuit of whatever it is you're motivated by life and being able to have a family, happy family life, is a balance that few people get right. Don't ask me for up-to-date stats on this, but I do know that my personality is an addictive style of personality, that when I get hooked on something like my career or my academic studies or writing books, I'm very addicted to wanting to continue to do that and to do the best that I can. I still feel unfulfilled, even though some people might say, well, that sounds like a pretty impressive CV. I still feel really unfulfilled. And this is the sporting aspect of me. There's always higher mountains to climb. I am conscious of this when I'm sitting down with younger executives. I do say to them, make sure you don't compromise family life in pursuit 
of professional goals. Think about it carefully because you can unintendedly say, look, I'm going to be very successful in my job. I want to become the CEO of this company and invest everything into doing that and sacrifice family. And you will regret that later in life because the pursuit of career satisfaction, which is totally understandable because most of us are motivated by that, particularly in big companies, the rug can be pulled away from you. The world can change on you. And then you look back at your family and you've neglected it. And then you look at the kids that are teenagers or young adults. You've not been there or for the sporting days or for the school shows or all the other things. That's a very, when you look back on your life and think, well, I've been, I'm very well, well off. I've got lots of things, that I'm, you know, the tangible things in life, material things in life that others might want. But if you've achieved that by sacrificing family, that's a hollow victory. I talk to someone with uh, who's fallen into that trap, but I also see that as a common characteristic of so-called successful people. Thank you for being um, so candid and honest with that. And I've got to admit, like, same thing for me, right? Like, I think that um, a lot of people have an inner instability and it was, I heard it was once described to me as one of Australia's most successful venture capitalists. I've got a glass or cup of hydrolite here. And he said, typically what happens is like, it's like a glass of water, which if you tip it to one side, it comes rushing back the other way. And so if we have anxieties or addictive personalities or something like that, and we, something forces that to happen, we come rushing back the other way to try and solve it. And sometimes that happens through sublimation. So where people try to solve for an internal issue or internal thing that they they want to solve for and they do that in outward facing way which seems healthy but it may not always be the healthiest thing that is like the remedy for that and uh, that's definitely happened with me joseph so it's definitely happened in the sense of i remember when i stood up at our first like kind of like an all hands event if you think of it like that and i have made this comment before in the, the series that i said that the business started actually from anxiety about money that's why it's a money business and so acknowledging that I think is the first step for a lot of business owners and founders and people like this. And then it's probably just being honest, which is very hard with yourself to look around and see how can you get support. And that would be the advice I have for a lot of people, particularly in a business, because it takes a lot from you morning, day and night. You're thinking about it. So the other thing, and again, I think this is true of a lot of people, particularly when I kind of look back on my childhood, I mean, I, I had a, a really loving family environment as a child. But my father, who I love deeply, he was a workaholic and and couldn't relax. And his view then was the job of the father or the man in the house is the breadwinner, to work hard and make sure that the family's looked after. And I, I was kind of influenced by that. It's very common of his generation but actually, of course, later in life, you say, I mean, he passed away in his early 60s because he worked far too hard and he died of cancer. But the cancer was, at least from my understanding of psychology and neuroscience, they, a factor in that cancer was stress. And stress is a shocker. I mean, stress doesn't always cause cancer, but if you're predisposed to a cancer gene, living a stressful life is one sure way of having living a shorter life than you should otherwise have had. So I learned working habits from him that, you know, I thought that the job of the man was to go and work hard 
bring in the money so that the family could go on holiday and buy a car and et cetera. And you kind of fall into that trap and then it's very hard to change. So again, I repeat myself a little bit here. When I do speak to younger executives, people looking to build a career, you know, I do warn them against making sure that you don't make sacrifices on the family front in pursuit of the goals that you might set yourself in a career because it is a very hollow victory if you lose your family but you become the CEO. Yep. I speak to a lot of um, CEOs, Joseph, uh, maybe not as many as you, but uh, I definitely speak to them. I speak to a lot of business owners and people that maybe like, you know, you consider to be minor celebrities in their own right. And I tell you that they still have the same issues that many of us have and it may just be amplified. And so that's one thing. I just conscious of time, Joseph, there is one final little question I, I've got for you and I'd love to do this again in person for around two sometime. But because you run a business at scale now and you do do things like this, you know, I'm curious, do you have anything in your routine, perhaps in the morning or night, that you do as kind of like a, a habit or almost like a religious habit? I'm curious, do you do things like journaling in the evening? Do you have a morning ritual? Anything that kind of helps you frame the day? Yeah. Yes, I am a person of routine. I would wake up between 5 and 6 a.m. I'll go straight on to the internet to check the newspapers, start with the Financial Times in London, then the, the Financial Review and, and the other domestic papers so, and the BBC and the ABC. So I, first thing in the morning is kind of get myself up to date. I look at the stock markets and that have been open overnight just to see what's been happening there. Then I get out, get to the gym, or I go for a long walk. I would do that easily five days, if not six days a week. And I kind of plan, I clear my head on priorities for the day ahead during that exercising. I try to operate through what I call a 30 plus 30 plus 30 plus 10 formula, which I've been doing for 20 years. And that is the way that I speak allocate my time is 30% of the time is sitting down speaking to people, staff in the company. 30% of the time is on speaking to customers or other stakeholders of the company. 30% of the time is on managing the company, you know, the governance and um, meetings that you have to have. And then 10% of the time is is on planning my diary. And and I I take great care in planning a diary at two months um, normally. And I try and watch how my time is being allocated because it's so easy to find yourself sitting in meetings after meetings after meetings and not allocating the time the way that you should be allocating it as the CEO of the company. You've got to be asking yourself, is this something I really need to be doing? And if I'm doing this, what am I not doing? I think one of the most powerful insights that economics has offered us in life is the concept of opportunity cost. Do you Are you familiar with that? Yeah. Because I think about opportunity cost all the time. If I'm doing this or if I'm going on this trip, what am I giving up as a consequence of that? And what's the value of that? So thinking about opportunity cost, what else you could be doing with that time is so, so important to the way that you kind of manage yourself. So I, I am quite disciplined and or structured in how I manage my time. And it, and that's helped me, with, for example, with the four books and the six master's degrees and all of the other things. 
because I, I do structure my time. And, you know, there are things that, things that I've consciously said I'm not going to do. People still are amazed that I'm not a golfer as a Scotsman, right? But I knew if I took up golf, I would, I, all the other things that I've done, I wouldn't have got done. Because of my addictive personality, it would have been all-consuming. So I think being structured, thinking carefully about how you spend your time is so important. Don't sit back and think, oh, I wish I'd spent more time on this, because you can organize yourself to do that. And avoid the temptation to get involved in endless meetings. Banks and businesses can become quite bureaucratic organizations. And you just got to be careful that you don't get caught up in that because the opportunity cost of sitting and meeting after meeting after meeting can be quite significant. And the things that you should be focusing on, i.e. the future direction of the company and the team that you've got and the team that you need, dealing with people, these are things that a leader should be focusing in on rather than being busy on other stuff. I really like that, Joseph. I haven't actually heard the 30, 30, 30, 10 idea before. I can't remember coming across it. So that's um, really fascinating. There are a host of other questions that I'd love to get to in uh, in another sitting, but um, I, for one, am going to be someone that uh, takes a good hard look at my business's financials and uh, considers making the switch across to judo. I think um, you've impressed between you and David, you've impressed upon me the importance of having relationships with bankers and having relationships with informed people who can act as kind of like an arm's length advisor as much as a facilitator to credit and those types of things for the business. So I really do appreciate you taking some time out of your holiday. I don't know how I squeezed in with that two-month calendar, but um, two-month diary. But uh, I do really appreciate once again, Joseph. So thank you for taking the time to join me. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much, Sean. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Australian Business Podcast. I think this series is best served with my free business course on RASC Education. My free course includes all of my notes, templates, employment guides, legal documents, marketing strategies, software recommendation, and ideas for starting and running a small business. If you're a small business owner or an expert like an accountant, lawyer, investor, or entrepreneur, I want to hear from you. I'm not 100% sure what we're going to do with this podcast series, so I'm looking for sponsors as well as potential co-hosts, and of course, I'm eager to invest in businesses run by talented people. If you're looking for a supporter or advisor, a silent partner, or even an investor to support your growth, I can help. Please contact me via the RASC website. Finally, if this podcast or the course helps you, I only ask that you please help me by sharing it with one friend, colleague, or family member who runs a business. Thanks for listening.